Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. And before we get started with this week's show, we just want to make sure you know this is the last week that you can be a part of Nerdette's first ever fundraising drive. We have some awesome thank you gifts for those of you who are able to give at a couple of different levels. You could be scoring a Nerdette notebook to write all your big ideas in, or this delightful Nerdette mug could be yours. And you could put whatever you want in it. Obviously, you could use it at home or at the office, and you could be drinking coffee or tea out of it, but maybe you want to make sure that it stays pristine, and so you're just going to fill it with really useful desk accoutrement. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it stores your fancy paperclip collection or your colored Sharpies. Yeah. Hopefully you get some creative Sharpie use in your day job, <laughs> and this would be useful, this Nerdette mug. You could put tiny plastic dinosaurs or maybe like a cute little succulent plant. Oh, that would That'd be, be nice. adorable. Or just a pile of air plants, really. Go to wbez.org slash Nerd Alert. Remember, your donation is tax deductible. We are nonprofit media. We are independent and we depend on listeners like you. You know, maybe you read a book because we told you to. Maybe you learned a little more about someone who you were already really interested in. You know, if Nerdette is helpful, if Nerdette like enriches your week because you listen to us, then we'd love, even if it's just a couple bucks, for you to be a part of this fundraising drive. WBEZ.org slash Nerd Alert. Okay, now let's get to the meat of the show, if you will. This week, Trisha is talking with Derek Thompson. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, where he writes about all sorts of things like economics and labor markets and the media. He's also the author of a new book called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. It's all about what makes certain things popular and why some things don't become as popular as maybe they should. Right. Like sometimes you think, why is that Netflix show the one everyone is talking about? And no one is talking about the one that I'm watching that involves Eric McCormack from Will and Grace as a time traveler. Is that the one you're watching? Yes. Why isn't this show popular? I'm watching. Nerds, come on, watch this show with me. I'm watching the one about Drew Barrymore being a zombie. See, everyone's talking about that show right now. Really? Is everyone talking about it? Yeah, because it's got Drew Barrymore in it and Santa yeah. Clarita Diet. I've seen ads for that everywhere. But it's like they didn't even tell anyone that the show with Eric McCormack That's is true. on Netflix. <laughs> but only I've watched it. Would you like Me to tell us Eric about it? Me and Eric probably are the only two people who've watched it. If you have watched Travelers on Netflix, by the way, which is maybe its most unpopular but pretty good new sci-fi show... Uh, tweet at me, at Trisha Bobita, because I want to talk about it with someone who's seen it. <laughs> okay, but back to what we're actually talking about this week, which is this book by Derek. So you talked to him, Trisha, but before you started your conversation, you had to get something out of the way right away. Right. Big disclaimer. Derek and I are old friends. We went to undergrad together. So I have heard him sing a lot of acapella, and we have eaten a lot of Chinese food late at night back in <laughs> Evanston, Illinois. Derek Thompson, welcome to Nerdette. It's so great to be here. Thank you. And thank you for telling everybody about acapella and Chinese food. I had, I'd almost forgotten. <laughs> so let's get into it. 
This book is all about what makes things popular or go viral, and not just in the current era of social media and all that, but since the beginning of what we would consider popular culture. So Renaissance art and really early ideas about music, Mm -hmm. what makes them cross cultures, cross oceans, and become earworms that stay with us for hundreds of years. And I really love the example at the very beginning of the book because it's something I've thought a lot about, which is I go to the Art Institute of Chicago, which I love. It's one of my favorite places. But I find myself wondering... Why is that painting on the wall when so many others are not? So how do you approach that question? So this is this is the first big story of the book. It's one of my favorite stories that I found in writing this book. Why are some paintings so unbelievably famous when some similar paintings are not? And I go back to the beginning of the Impressionist world, uh, where Monet and Manet and Degas are, are milling about and being despised uh, by the Academy of France. One of the lesser known Impressionists today is Gustave Caillebotte. He painted Paris Rainy Day, which is at the Art Institute in Chicago. He collected a bunch of his friends' paintings if they wouldn't sell. He was like a buyer of last resort. And he collects six or seven of his friend's paintings. And he dies in the early 1890s of a stroke in in his early 40s. And he bequeaths all of his paintings to the French government. He says, I want these paintings to hang in the Musée de Luxembourg. And the museum says, no, absolutely not. And there's a bit of a haggling. And finally, they decide, okay, we're going to hang your estate in the French Museum for the first time. We're going to have a exhibit dedicated to Impressionist art. There were only seven painters in that exhibit that Caillebotte had collected. Who were those seven painters? Manet, Monet, Degas, Cezanne, Renoir, Sisley, and Pissarro. Which is probably the only ones anyone can name. Exactly. And if you ask art historians today, who are the seven canonical French Impressionist painters? They will name the exact same seven, the Caillebotte Seven. What's amazing about this story is that it suggests that a single death in the early 1890s publicly consecrated the Impressionist canon. In one fell swoop, all of these pieces of art went to hang in a French museum. And so, lo and behold, the next generation of artists studied those seven painters. The next generation of art historians studied those seven painters. And the fun thing about this story is not just what it suggests about our feelings on art, that we love art that's a little bit familiar, that we love recognizing fame, but also it it sort of suggests in a funny way that canons are BS, that (laughs) canons in art might be BS, and canons in literature are BS, and canons in classical music might be BS, that what we think of as famous, what we think of as the law of culture was sometimes consecrated by something as accidental as a premature stroke. And I find that to be both a titillating idea and sort of inspiring also. Maybe we all are, you know, one moment's inspiration plus a public consecration away from creating our own canonical hits as well. I love this idea. And the book is full of examples, case studies, in a way, of the way things became famous that almost weren't. Star Wars is explained in here, so many things. But I want to talk a little bit about one of the ways people try to predict what will be popular. Can you explain what hit predictor is? Sure, yeah. Hit predictor and sound out are two online music testing companies. So let's say that, uh, Trisha, you and I, we make a song together. Uh, We can send the song to Hit Predictor, and they'll play it for hundreds of people, and they'll come out with a rating. If it's above 65, they'll say, this can be a hit if it gets enough radio exposure. 
But here's the thing. For every song, that one song that scores over 65 and becomes a hit because it plays a lot on the radio, there are 100, 150, 200 songs that score above this hit threshold on Hit Predictor that you and I have never heard of that just don't get radio exposure. And so in many ways, it's like the opposite of the Kaibot effect, right? In the art world, you have two paintings that come out in the 1880s. One of them Kaibot didn't buy and wasn't in his bequest, and the other one he did buy, and the latter becomes canon and the former we never think of. It's the same principle of the power of exposure in music. You take two songs that are of equal catchiness. One of them gets an enormous amount of radio airplay, the other one doesn't, and then we think of the former as this enormous, obvious, world-conquering hit, and the latter sometimes as a bad song. But we shouldn't do that. Quality isn't destiny in cultural markets. Lots of times, inferior products succeed because of superior distribution. I like in the book you list out some of the songs from 2015 and their scores. So these will be familiar to people. I think that Hotline Bling by Drake had a 70.25 rating. And Hello by Adele had a 105 rating. That must be almost an outlier then, right? That Hello was just an earworm in the making? I, absolutely. I mean, it was, so it's funny because I, I talked to these guys a bit about, you know, what's your favorite music? Are there some bands that are really popular but score really poorly in online testing sites? Uh, unfortunately, uh, they would not give me that information on the record. But very interestingly, I thought the best performing record in the history of Sound Out is Adele's sophomore album, 21. Uh, it included three worldwide number one hits. It won the 2012 Grammy Award for Album of the Year. And the Sound Out founder told me, Every single song on the album 21 by Adele scored over an 80. Wow. Uh, they had never seen that before, and they've never seen it since. So at least in this sort of independent universe uh, where distribution doesn't exist and all songs are, are judged purely on the sound of their, uh, on, on their catchiness, uh, Adele's 21 is the greatest album ever made. Scientifically, it is proven. Scientifically, yes. So folks may or may not know that as a part of my day job, in addition to Nerd Out Here, I'm a digital editor at a public radio station here at WBEZ. So I spend a lot of time looking at statistics about how people listen to things because we're always trying to figure out how to make people listen more, engage them more. And I'm always surprised that even though there are all these new platforms like Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, Pandora still seems to kind of eat everybody else's lunch. And specifically, the Edison share of the ear research shows that even the youths, even the really young folks at the very sort of 18 to 20 whatever range of these surveys are using Pandora in droves. And I wonder why you think it works so well. Pandora works beautifully because it upholds one of the theses of this book, which is that people love discovering new ideas and new products and new songs and movies. But we only love these products, ideas, songs and movies when they're a little bit familiar, when they remind us of the songs, products, ideas and movies that we know we already like. So here is Pandora having put way more research than any other company into the musicology of these songs and finding a way to develop a perfect algorithm for uh, giving people 
people songs that are sneakily familiar. In the book, across cultural categories, I call these ideas familiar surprises. It's the concept that in the majority of every uh, top grossing film in the U.S. every year this decade uh, has been a sequel adaptation or reboot. Uh, it's also the case that our taste in music tend to be relatively fixed. And so we like, you know, our familiar chord structures, but in slightly new timbers, uh, we have conservative tastes. And Pandora is this absolutely brilliant algorithm at essentially saying, we figured out through both your input and your stated preferences, what kind of music you like. And we're going to design an environment for the next two hours. that You can just trust us. We're going to give you stuff that is optimally familiar. It won't be too familiar. It won't be too new. It'll just hit that sweet spot again and again and again. A couple of times I've decided I'm going to try something new. I'm going to try a different service than Pandora, but I've been using Pandora for 10 years and I always go back because it gets me. It gets you. So I I use Spotify more. I use Discover Weekly religiously, which is uh, Spotify's uh, weekly dump of 30 uh, new songs. But what's fascinating about Spotify Discover Weekly is that when they were first testing the product internally, they wanted it to be entirely new songs. But there was a bug in the algorithm, and they accidentally let slip in some songs and artists that people had already heard before. So they fixed the bug, and they tested again, and engagement collapses. It turns out that the bug was an essential feature. People needed to recognize some artists and songs in that new playlist of music to so-called discover. We need a little bit of familiarity to engage with new products. And I think it's true of music. I think it's true of storytelling. But I also think it's true of tech products. You know, you go uh, to Steve Jobs. Remember that Michael Fassbender scene where he's looking at the Mac and he says, this computer has to look like like a face. It has to say hello, right? He's designing a new product, but he wanted it to be a friend as well. So there's some hard science in the book as well, a lot of social science and some hard science. And I want to play a clip of something that a researcher discovered and we'll hear it first and then I'll have you describe it for us. Oh, cool. Great. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible but they sometimes behave so strangely, they sometimes behave so strangely, sometimes behave so strangely, sometimes behave so strangely. Yeah. See what happens there? So, Derek, explain what may have just happened in heads all across America as they were listening to that. (laughs) That woman's name is Diana Deutsch. She's a musicologist at the University of San Diego, and this was a line from a book she had written. And she was just futzing around in her office and playing that line in a loop. And suddenly she realized, I'm singing? No, I was, I was just talking a second ago, but suddenly I started repeating this phrase and it was song. So she's a detective of musical illusions. And the name for this particular effect is the speech to song illusion. It's the idea that you can essentially take almost any bit of human speech and start repeating it again. Start repeating it again. Start repeating it again. And the brain cannot help but start to hear it, it just it just happens. So what she would say is that repetition essentially is the God particle of music. And so in music all over the world, not just those that sort of fit, you know, Maroon 5 Coldplay uh, standards in the U.S., but Mongolian throat singing and Australian Aborigine music all follows a really similar pattern of 
early repetition followed by a bit of variety that goes back to early repetition. In just a minute, Derek tells us why things that are popular aren't always things that are cool. Which is good news for us nerds. Again, <laughs> is anyone watching that show? <laughs> just me? All right. You're listening to Nerdette. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Okay, Derek, I want to talk a little bit about the idea in this book that popularity is provable and has some quantifiable elements to it. But the relationship between popular and cool... And I wonder what you think about the fact that when some things become too popular in someone's estimation, they become less cool. Why is that? Why is popular become a pejorative in some cases? The way that I investigate this question, which is this big kind of unwieldy question, it's a bit like, you know, Marco Polo's bridge, is to look at first names. First names are a really interesting cultural product because first names are cultural products. They do have hype cycles. They are fashions. If you meet someone named Edna or Ethel, you have a sense of how old she is. But they don't have prices. They are infinite. And there's really no marketing for first names. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, in the 1930s, Adolf became a much less popular name in the U.S. and Franklin became a much more popular name. Remains to be seen what happens with Donald. But (laughs) but no one is – there's no company that's like we need more people named Michael or, you know, Nike isn't trying to get people to name their kids Nike. So why do names have a hype cycle? And the theory from Stanley Lieberson is that parents have a taste for popularity in first names. Some parents love first names that are unpopular because they're unpopular. And other parents love popular names because they're popular. So the signal of a name's popularity can trigger two entirely different responses. So here's what happens in a culture like ours. A lot of people glom on to a familiar, but not too familiar, familiar surprise name like Samantha in the 1980s and 1990s. Suddenly Samantha soars up the charts, becomes the fifth most popular name in the entire U.S. for baby girls. But then at that level of popularity, there just aren't enough people who want to name their child something that lots of other parents have named. So there are fewer babies named Samantha in the next five or ten years, and Samantha falls back down the curve that it has risen. The really interesting reason why we should think that this is not just a weird theory, but also perhaps uh, a scientific truth, is that parents seem to have similar tastes for popularity for all of their children's names. So, for example, if you meet a group of siblings named uh, Fred... Samantha 
and Stephen, the fourth child's not going to be named Xanthope, right? <laughs> but if you meet like Xanthope, Prairie Rose, and Esmeralda, it'd be really weird to meet their brother, Bob, you know? And so what does this have to do with cool? Well, it suggests that when something becomes really popular, some people like it because it's popular, but some people interpret its popularity as a sign that it might be Drek. You know, I think we definitely saw this with Taylor Swift after 1989 crested. Some people love the fact that Taylor Swift was ubiquitous and popular. Other people, you could tell like online, were sort of waiting for her to mess up. Yeah. They were waiting to have a negative opinion of Taylor Swift because she had reached that threshold of popularity where she just wasn't cool to them anymore. I also think it's so interesting, particularly with music, to watch the trickle down of ages. So if something gets all the way to middle schoolers, I have a lot of family who are teachers and principals and things like that. By the time a song gets to the middle school dance, you feel like maybe it's over Mm -hmm. because it's it's trickled all the way down to the 11 year olds getting to listen to it. They aren't the ones who find things first historically. I guess now with technology, they're probably doing as much discovery maybe as their parents are when it comes to music. But yeah, that, you know, when something trickles all the way down to the youngs and the olds, then the people in the middle have decided it's, it's past its prime. Yeah, I think the the other way this definitely works is um, the phenomenon of dad jokes, right? Is the idea that, you know, if you're 17 years old and you like Chance the Rapper and you listen to Chance the Rapper with your friends and then suddenly you realize that your mom and dad are listening to Chance the Rapper and quoting him over dinner, you're like, ew, what is this, dad? Like, stop trying to be cool. Like, you're ruining (laughs) Chance the Rapper for me, right? And so coolness, uh, sociologists define as a positive rebellion against the mainstream. So in order for something to be cool, it has to be antagonistic to a mainstream. But once the mainstream picks up on something that was formerly radical, it can't be cool anymore, almost by definition. You can't show any detachment from a mainstream thought by simply falling in line with the mainstream. And I think that this happens a lot with artists is, you know, an artist like sort of starts off small, like maybe Kanye West after his first album, maybe a second album, and then he enters the mainstream. And then once Kanye West is like the biggest star in the world, if you're like a hipster music fan, you're not going to get a whole lot of social status over saying that your favorite album is late registration. So you have to go looking somewhere else to make your identity. Kanye has gone from radical to mainstream. He simply, by definition, cannot be cool making anymore. I like to say that that's the difference between nerds and hipsters is that when something gets too popular, hipsters abandon it, but nerds are just excited to finally have someone who likes the thing they like. I have friends. (laughs) Yeah, right. People to talk to about my favorite thing. Yeah, everyone's watching Doctor Who. Hooray, I've been waiting (laughs) 48 years. Bring more people online to talk about the last episode. I think that's a great point. If you are a hipster, you interpret quantitative popularity as a negative signal. But if you're a nerd and it's like it's something like Star Wars, then you're like, wow, fabulous. Like more people are coming to the Star Wars or Star Trek convention. Like this is great. I'm so excited that we can have like a bigger party. Is there something that you would be willing to fess up to that you love even though you don't think it's cool? Oh, I I fess up to this right in the book. Uh, the, the, the two examples of cultural works that I, I talk about uh, having a, a deep abiding love for in the first interlude are Hamlet and Dumb and Dumber. And I'm not trying to be sort of purposely cool and, and high lowbrow here. They're just, they simply happen to be two of my favorite things. I, I think Hamlet is simply like the best written thing ever. And I just open it up and sometimes we'll just like pick out a random line and think, I, I can't believe a human being wrote this and all the lines around it. But with Dumb and Dumber, you know, the, the fun thing about going back to Dumb and Dumber in this book is I'd been talking to a couple of psychologists about nostalgia and the power of nostalgia in art, which is sort of interesting because, you know, so much of 
what makes you cool, I suppose, uh, as a cultural consumer is being hip to the new, right? You know the latest thing to break. But nostalgia is all about letting that go. And they have some interesting theories about why nostalgia is so powerful. They say, you know, sometimes nostalgia is just purchasing an old feeling. But another beautiful thing and more complex thing that nostalgia does is it allows for sort of psychological palimpsest. Uh, a palimpsest is like a, an artwork where there are scribbles and erasures so you can sort of see beneath the top layer of, of paint or art. And so you sort of see dimensions, old and new, seeing at the same time. And that when you reconsume things like Dumb and Dumber, for me, again and again and again, it's not the same movie. I'm focusing on different things. I'm, I'm focusing on smaller and smaller details. And in uh, sort of experiencing some of the, you know, funniest lines, I, and I'm laughing just thinking of them, you know, <laughs> I start to think of like my friends who I quote these lines to. And, and, and I, I, I'm now in two places at once, right? I'm sitting in a, in a couch watching Dumb and Dumber, but I'm also 19 years old in Allison Hall in the South Campus of Northwestern hanging out with my friend Mark. And You're probably, this, by the way, at that same moment, mooching off of my leftover Chinese food. I just want to point that out. I was hoping you wouldn't bring up the mooching, but yeah, uh -huh. 100% mooching off the Chinese food and hoping you didn't see. And so, yeah, I'm experiencing both the fried chicken in the East Village and the orange chicken in Evanston. And, you know, realizing the gap between these two worlds allows for a kind of existential understanding that, you know, maybe only art can truly provide. There's a little field trip that you talk about going on in the book, and it's to the offices of Chartbeat. And mm. I wondered if you could talk about what you were hoping to learn from the folks at Chartbeat and then what happened as you entered the downstairs and headed back to the streets of New York City. Um, Chartbeat essentially is a website and app that allows website makers, writers, journalists to read their readers to view their audience. You can see at one glance how many people all over the world are reading your site, how many people are reading each individual article, how long they're scrolling down, where they're coming from, where they're leaving to, what Twitter and Facebook links you're, uh, you're sending out and what you're getting the most attention. So basically, it's this like God's eye view of the entire readership of your website. And I just wanted to talk to this guy who essentially, you know, was God because he invented the God machine. And, you know, we, we had like a lovely conversation about the, the limits of using data to predict what people want, um, the difference between stated preferences, what I say I want versus revealed preferences, what I actually click on. And we have a nice interview and I walk downstairs and I realized that Chartbeat is in the same building as The Strand. Uh, the Strand is New York's most famous independent bookshop. And what I thought was sort of lovely about that juxtaposition is that on the top floor and bottom floor of this building, you essentially have the past and future of writing. And in many ways, two entirely different theories about how to write. Do you write by watching your readers, figuring out what they like, reacting to them? Or should you write the way that novelists who end up in a bookstore write, which is, you know, to hold themselves up and sort of pull out the thoughts that come from their head and, you know, write in many ways and in many times for the audience of one that is yourself and you cannot know how people outside of yourself are going to react. Um, and so it just led me on a little like thought journey, I guess, like in terms of how I wrote this book and how I should write this book. How much feedback should I look for and when have I reached the end of feedback and when should I simply trust myself and the voices in my head, understanding that I'll never be able to get people to tell me exactly what they want in the future. 
I think that's such an important question. We talked to a lot of authors on Nerdette, and so many of them talk about the difference between, I think Sandra Cisneros said it as the capital A author and the lowercase author, that one's job is to make art and the other person's job in that same body is to promote it, to sell it, to find somebody to give it an audience. And the more we ask both of those things of our artists, the less time they have to make art. It's true. And one of the theses of this book, I tell you, you know, if the first thesis is familiarity beats originality when it comes to popular content, people just want stuff that's familiar. The second thesis of the book is probably that distribution beats content, that it's not about the the best song in the world, the most beautiful art piece, if that could even be proved in a, in a quantitative way, that the companies that own the channels of distribution almost always dictate popularity. And so, you know, for a writer like me, understanding, having just written this book and having, you know, prescribed to people the understanding that, you know, you need to do two parts of distribution for every one part art. It, it's, it's why I'm here. It's why I, I'm, I'm, you know, talking to all these people about my book and trying to, to use all these distribution channels. But it also is, yes, sometimes a little bit disconcerting to think that because we, we rely on the artist to also be the seller of his or her own art, that it does cut down on the time that you Simply spend, you know, with a glass of wine in a bathtub just thinking about your your next piece of art. If that is how some people think about the next piece of art, I don't know. It's a lovely way to think about art. It doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, delicious. Is there any one thing that has bubbled up in pop culture since you wrote the book that you would have loved to include, whether it was a hit song or a TV show or anything in the zeitgeist that you wish you could have unpacked in this book that's happened since it came out? Mm, such a good question. Well, you know, Donald Trump is in the book. He's in chapter one. He's in chapter three. I wrote this thinking like everybody else that Hillary Clinton would win the election. The book was finished in like uh, like October 2016. And then, you know, what happened happened. So I, I go back and forth on whether I, I wish that I had more formally developed a theory of Trump in the book, particularly because for so many people looking at Chartbeat, I know this is all they want to read about. They just want to read about what the hell is going on and what's a new way to explain it. So sometimes I think I should have done that. But then other times I think, no, people are are, are fed up with uh, our president. I also think maybe that, you know, I, I wish that I talked a little bit more about the technologies that are sort of just about to come down the pike. There's a little bit of augmented reality in here. There's a little bit of virtual reality. But because I was essentially writing a history book about the present, I didn't really develop uh, the chapters about augmented reality or virtual reality very much. It's much more about music, television, movies, storytelling, and the creation of digital culture. In just a minute, homework from Derek Thompson. You're listening to Nerdette. Before we let you go, what might be your homework for our Nerdette listeners? My homework assignment is another book. It's called Homo Deus. It's by Yuval Harari. He wrote this absolutely sensational book, Sapiens, A History of Mankind, a few years ago. This is his sequel. Uh, it's uh, just as humble uh, in its scope. It's the future of mankind, uh, and it's unbelievably brilliant, and I had the incredible honor to talk to him about it a few weeks ago. And this is just one of these people who is so mind-blowingly smart about what makes us human and what makes us happy and the failures and successes of modern civilization. Uh, I really couldn't recommend it more highly. Excellent homework. 
Derek Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Awesome. Yeah, that was so fun. Thank you so much. You know, I have not read Sapiens, but my mother, Mary Johnson, has, and she liked it very much. So if that counts as a Nerdette endorsement, there you go. Mary Johnson approve. <laughs> The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull and Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. And our intern is Brady Guy. Subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. Thanks to Folle Femme, whose name means crazy lady, by the way, for giving us a very nice iTunes review and for fighting the good fight with her brightly colored backpack. Grown-ups can wear brightly colored backpacks. I do. And it makes it so that I can always find it in the dark when I slide it under a table in a restaurant. <laughs> All you people with your dark-colored adult purses are always fumbling around. I can see my backpack right away. And I bet Folafem can, too. Because we take backpacks to bars. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast in all the internet places. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.